Dear listeners, I'm Lauren Conlon, and before you embark on this investigative journey with me, I want to offer a sincere word of my acknowledgement and gratitude. When I, as the host, first set out on this path, I was admittedly very green. I lacked the seasoned expertise and finesse that comes with experience in investigative podcasting and reporting. However, Every story has a beginning and an ending, and this podcast represents the start of my own investigative odyssey. So as you dive into these episodes, you may notice rough edges or moments where my inexperience shines through, but please know that every stumble and misstep has been a crucial part of my learning process, and I've embraced each challenge as an opportunity for growth and improvement. So I want to express my heartfelt appreciation to each and every one of you who was stuck with the story despite my imperfections because Grant's story is important. So your support and patience have been invaluable as I've navigated the complexities of investigative podcasting and your feedback, whether constructive criticism, words of encouragement, or maybe something that wasn't so nice has helped me and helped shape this podcast into what it is today. So without further ado, here is Corruption, What Happened to Grant Solomon. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Corruption. What happened to Grant Solomon? I'm your host, Lauren Conlon, and happy Wednesday. I was so happy to give Austin Davis a platform to share his story last week and for listeners to see how crazy this spiderweb really is. When I first started looking into Grant's death, I never once thought it would lead to something connected to the Covenant School. I launched Corruption about a month after the shooting, and yeah, I just would have never imagined that this case 
would lead to an episode like last week. So I have a lot to discuss today, so let's just get to it. Last week, I also gave a quick update on a separate episode regarding the beginning stages of an accident reconstruction, and I went over some of the details about Grant's truck again that people may have forgotten, and I want to play something for you guys that is really, really informative. So Byron Davis, the guest that I had on a few weeks ago, a former law enforcement, he made a TikTok about the truck and the accident as a former police officer and why he thinks foul play is involved. So I'm going to play part of this TikTok. I, I had to edit it slightly just because he does make some accusations that I don't want to put on the podcast, but you can hear the TikTok in its entirety if you head to his account, which is called at the shadow oath. And I also put that in the episode notes, but he breaks things down as a former police officer. And he's just very detailed, very thorough. And I had sent him the accident report, the truck forensics. So he has all of this information, which is why he was able to put something like this together with so much info. So again, he does some speculating and that is his opinion, but I want to play this for you guys because it's great. I was sent this case file regarding the death of Grant Solomon. As a retired law enforcement officer, these are the top six indicators that stood out to me. And the last, in my personal opinion, is the most damning. Number one, I'm going to play you a short clip of the recording from the 911 call that Aaron Solomon made. I'm trying. Where's your emergency? It's 1357 South Water Street. It's off 109. Please hurry. You said 57? Please hurry. Okay, what's going on? Uh, my, my son's truck backed over him, and he, it's rolled over him and drug him into the ditch, and it's on top of him. He's trapped under the truck, and I... I yeah, he... I, I, somehow it drug him underneath it. That phone call sounds disingenuine to me. It does not sound like a father who is worried about their son being pinned under a truck. Rather, it sounds like someone's trying to force an emotion. I have both seen and I've heard fathers who were worried about the safety of their children. And not once ever in my career did it sound like that. Number two, the truck was still in park after it had allegedly rolled over Grant and then came to a rest in the ditch. The photo that you're looking at is the photo taken by the investigating officer who was on scene the day of the incident. Aaron Solomon stated that no one went inside the vehicle after the incident took place, meaning the parking mechanism in the truck had to have failed. In a moment, I'm going to show you a photo of a document that debunks that claim. Number three, there were no markings consistent with being ran over by a vehicle on Grant's body. Most of us have run over animals on the highway and it makes a god-awful sound. It makes that sound because they're being tumbled under the vehicle. And if a truck is running over a body, then it's going to do the exact same thing to a human. And therefore, if they're being dragged, there's going to be road rash. And if they're being rolled or tumbled, there's going to be several, several, several broken bones on top of lacerations and road rash. So this does not make sense that 
He was dragged under a truck and then died as a result, especially whenever the truck was not resting on top of him in the ditch. Number four, there was blunt force trauma to the back of his head and he was bleeding out of his nose, mouth, and ears, which is consistent with blunt force trauma. In the event the truck caused this blunt force trauma, there would have been a lot more trauma to his body, but there wasn't. The kid was hit in the back of the head with something. Simple as that. Number five, a forensic investigation was conducted on the truck by an independent third-party agency, and they found that the information and events provided by Aaron Solomon did not coincide to the results of their investigation into the truck. During this investigation, they attempted to get the parking mechanism in the truck to fail, and it never did. Angie, his mom, also attempted to get the parking mechanism in the truck to fail, and it never did. So we know the story given by Aaron Solomon stating that the truck was in park and the mechanism failed, which resulted in the truck rolling over and dragging Grant to the ditch, is false. That brings us to the only logical explanation in this event. The vehicle wasn't in park whenever it rolled. Someone was in the driver's seat, and when the vehicle came to a rest, they put it in park. Now, let me ask you this. When you place your vehicle in park and then exit your vehicle, most of you do it every single day, do you remember doing it? No, we don't remember doing it. Why? Because it's subconscious. And in this situation, whoever was in that driver's seat, after the vehicle came to a rest, they subconsciously placed that truck in park and didn't realize it. Number six, and what I believe is the most obvious indicator of this being a cover-up, is the crash report. Never in the history of my career have I ever seen an individual get killed during a vehicle crash and a reconstruction of that scene not conducted. It makes no sense. When someone is killed in a car crash or ran over by a vehicle in a collision, whatever the case, a reconstruction is always done by competent law enforcement agencies. What this shows me right here is that one, the officer was either incredibly lazy and didn't want to delve into the situation, or two, he is actively involved in the cover-up. Now, investigative journalist, podcaster, and contributor to multiple media outlets, Lauren Collin, also picked this case up and sent letters to District Attorney Ray Whitley about this case. After sending multiple letters, she finally got a response, and this is what the letter stated. You can pause it and read it. The arrogance this man demonstrates is infuriating. He states in the letter that she doesn't know the facts, but the fact is, is that very little that the Gallatin Police Department and District Attorney Ray Whitley is telling the public makes sense. Listen, I support our law enforcement and I support the success of our criminal justice system. But the fact of the matter is that what we're being told in this case is bullshit. The Department of Justice needs to step in and investigate this case. I have lost all confidence in the entirety of our justice system. And this case right here is one of many reasons why. Let me know in the comments what you think. Yeah, Byron is so good. It's so crazy how badly we need this reconstruction done. I've said this before, but regardless of what you think uh, about the key players involved in this case, whether you 
think they're guilty, they're innocent, whatever. The way the police handled the investigation, which we've called a traffic accident at at this point, because that's what they call it, it wasn't right. And all you have to do is go back and listen to the Cheryl McCollum episode to just give yourself a refresher on how the police should treat the mother and the family of somebody who passed away that has questions. And if they did a reconstruction as they should have, maybe Angie and Gracie wouldn't have so many questions. And something to explore, I think, when you're just stepping back and looking at this case, as a parent, as a mother or a father, if you're the only witness to your child's death and your other child is questioning what happened to their sibling, and it would appear that you want a relationship with that other child, even though maybe they do not want one with you, wouldn't you at least entertain them and say, you know what, you're right. It is strange that there are no burns or injuries after I thought he was dragged. I mean, I wasn't really looking, but you know, I was looking at my my work email, but let's get some answers because I want to know too. Because between the written statements and the 911 call, it's made pretty clear that the only witness, Aaron Solomon, states he doesn't actually know what happened. He thinks he was dragged, but he doesn't know. Just think about that for a minute. What if that was you making that call? And after all is said and done, your child is deceased at 18 years old, a freak accident, and you're still unsure of what exactly happened and your other child is questioning what happened just days after the accident occurred. I would be acting a lot differently and that's all. And I certainly, I certainly would have requested an autopsy if I stated I was unsure of what happened. And I know that was a lot of rambling right there, but I just have been thinking lately about the the reconstruction and the accident itself, and it really is crazy. If you state, if you're the witness and you state, I don't know, I don't know what happened, I think this, I think that, wouldn't that be more of a reason to do the accident reconstruction or at least request one or again, request an autopsy? Shame on everyone. But as a heads up, For next week's episode, I will be featuring another former Tennessee law enforcement officer, and he's also ex-military. He lives in Tennessee. He's from Tennessee. And in his career, he personally investigated as a police officer over 1,000 car crashes. And to this day, he still testifies in court as an expert witness in crash reconstruction. So what we'll be doing for next week, he's going to take us through an unofficial accident recon. So he's already sent me a bunch of different points that he wants to make, and I'm just very excited to have him on. But back to Byron's TikTok very quickly. He did mention some things about the DA and the responding officer that I cut out because it was, again, a bit accusatory. But the last email I sent to DA Ray Whitley was on February 8th, and I have not received a response. I went back and asked him to clarify the facts that I didn't know, if not for me, for Angie Solomon. And I want to read something to you that I recently came across that pertains to prosecutors or district attorneys. 
to reiterate just how much power they actually have. And this is from the DOJ archive. It's something that Supreme Court Justice Robert H. Jackson observed in 1940 at the second annual conference of the United States Attorneys. Quote, The prosecutor has more control over life, liberty, and reputation than any other person in America. His discretion is tremendous. He can have citizens investigated, and if he's that kind of a person, he can have this done to the tune of public statements and veiled or unveiled intimations. Or the prosecutor may choose a more subtle course and simply have a citizen's friend interviewed. The prosecutor can order arrests, present cases to the grand jury in secret sessions, and on the basis of his one-sided presentation of the facts, can cause the citizens to be indicted and held for trial. He may dismiss the case before trial, in which case the defense never has a chance to be heard, or he may go on with a public trial. If he obtains a conviction, the prosecutor can still make recommendations as to sentence as to whether the prisoner should get probation or a suspended sentence, and after he's put away, as to whether he is a fit subject for parole. While the prosecutor at his best is one of the most beneficent forces in our society, when he acts from malice or other base motives, he is one of the worst." End quote. And that was Robert Jackson, the federal prosecutor that delivered this address, so to speak, at the second annual conference of the United States Attorneys, April 1st in 1940. And I've linked that out in the episode notes. And yeah, maybe some things have changed since then, but you get it. I mean, that is the power that D.A. Whitley holds here. That's the power. And here is a great example of this power out of Sumner County, of course. It's the case of Michael Cummins. Michael Cummins was a Tennessee man who was facing the death penalty for the horrific killings of eight people in Westmoreland in April of 2019. And these eight people that he killed... Two of them were his own parents, and one of them was a 12-year-old girl, and he viciously murdered them. And now it came as a shock to everybody when Ray Whitley informed the public that instead of the death penalty, Michael was actually getting a surprise plea deal where he would just get life in prison without parole. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And this came after Ray was presented with a brain scan of Michael's brain. And he told the press that there were significant problems with that brain scan. Quote unquote, significant problems. So there you go. All Michael Cummins needed was for Ray Whitley to announce that there were significant problems with his brain scan, and he's able to live out his life in its entirety in prison. And the eight people that he killed do not. So I don't think a lot of people necessarily pay attention to who their district attorney is a lot of the time. I mean, the average person probably doesn't. And, you know, living in Manhattan, our DA is very well known, Alvin Bragg. He's known for being soft on crime and releasing violent criminals back on the street. And he's always making national headlines for that, which is why a lot of people know him. But it's just crazy. The DA does hold a lot of power. And I don't think a lot of people realize this. Since we're on the subject of Sumner County, I do want to refresh everyone's memory about a few things that I stated from season one. I shared a lot of emails and findings, observations from listeners who happened to live in the area last season. And when this show was on break, I was still getting a lot of emails and information. And I'm going to share something that I've heard in different words, from about four different medical professionals. And this is obviously not a blanket statement from all medical professionals in the area. Of course not. And you can also interpret this any way you'd like. But again, I've had about four people tell me this in different variations, but I will quote one of them, quote, Sumner County is where people go to die, literally that's what it's known for, end quote. And this person also told me like they worked on an ambulance and they just cringed when they had to go there. And another person said they have paramedics that just have horror stories from Sumner County. And I'm like, man, this is very interesting. And if you recall, this could also be because Sumner County doesn't require autopsies. And remember, Davidson County would call in the medical examiner and the ME would do this examination of the body and then they'd make a decision. And just to add to that, because it's been a while, I will refresh your memory that Dr. Ray Pinkston, who is an ER physician at Sumner County and also the medical examiner there, he took a look at Grant's body at the medical report and was like, nope, I'm not going to demand an autopsy. Nope, nope, no need for that. And that guy, Dr. Pinkston, does not return phone calls. So I'm currently looking into other deaths in Sumner County as well. So stay tuned for my findings. Okay, let's pivot to the topic of open records in Tennessee. 
Last season, I discussed Senate Majority Leader Jack Johnson pushing a bill that would block the release of records in deaths that were ruled non-criminal. This stemmed from the Judd family, Ashley Judd, suing Williamson County journalists for requesting body cam footage from the day that her mother took her own life. Naomi Judd took her own life tragically. And by the way, the lawsuit against the journalists was later dropped by the family. But this whole thing just seemed very convenient for Jack Johnson that he could use the Judd family, who's very famous, to try to get this bill pushed through. So I want to read something interesting to you. I'm going to quote directly from the Tennessean, which is also linked out in the episode notes, that quote, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee's office has used a controversial public records exemption to deny over 60 requests from local journalists, residents, and state reps since 2019, which experts say is a low blow to transparency and public accountability. The exemption, which is called the Deliberative Process Privilege, is an exemption to state open records laws that have been carved out by the courts. The privilege allows high government officials to deny records when they believe the documents are part of their deliberate decision-making process. Because the exemption lacks specifics, critics say it leads to abuse and an overly broad reading of the privilege by state and local officials. End quote. Yeah, this is so crazy. They essentially can look at something and say, nope, I'm not going to give this to you. This is part of my deliberate decision making. Okay. Deborah Fisher, and she's the executive director of the Tennessee Coalition for Open Government, she said, quote, this broad interpretation is not a good thing because it basically lets them take a magic wand and whatever they don't want to release, they just use this phrase over it, deliberative process. There's no limit to what they can keep secret, end quote. It's also noted in the article that 80% of open record requests by the media are denied. That's 80%, which is so insane. And I'll also note in general, the state of Tennessee is one of eight states where you have to be a citizen to submit a FOIA request. Obviously, any state can deny a non-resident their request or even not respond if they're not a citizen, but the following states, you must be a citizen to request an open record, and that's Alabama, Arkansas, Delaware, Georgia, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. I feel like this is very on brand for Tennessee, but my home state of New Hampshire, come on, live for your die. What's the point of that? Um, but... Let's hope that Tennessee doesn't get Jack Johnson's bill pushed through, as I feel like that would just be the beginning of the demise of open records. Okay, lastly for today, let's talk about something that happened last week that's really big news, and it's just horrendous. And I cannot believe that I have not seen this covered on Fox or CNN or News Nation. It's out of Johnson City, Tennessee, which is about five hours from Franklin. And as of 2020, there were about 71,000 people residing in Johnson City. There's two middle schools, one high school, 
three hospitals, and essentially, this is what happened. A man named Sean Williams allegedly has been drugging and raping women and two minors since 2018, and allegedly, the police have helped cover this up via bribes. So I'll quote directly from the article. And by the way, there are 50 women who have a case against the Johnson City Police and this guy, Sean Williams. Quote, a federal judge has greenlit a class action lawsuit against Johnson City and its police force that makes explosive allegations that some cops took bribes and turned the other way while a serial rapist assaulted scores of women and at least two children. The ruling on Friday dramatically raises the stakes in a police corruption scandal that has riddled the Northeast Tennessee community and the city's potential liability should it lose or settle the case. Instead of 10 plaintiffs identified as Jane Doe's in a lawsuit first filed in June, the ruling now opens the door to potentially hundreds of Johnson City victims who were sexually assaulted over a more than five-year period from January 1st of 2018 to April 25th, 2023, regardless of who the perpetrator was or whether the assaults were reported to police. U.S. District Judge Travis McDonough said he didn't find Johnson City's efforts to thwart the class action lawsuit compelling. His 17-page decision dismissed nearly every argument the city sought to raise in limiting the scope of the lawsuit, including a suggestion that the victim's attorneys sought class action status as a ploy to delay the legal process. Quote, the subject of this case, an alleged conspiracy between the JCPD and a serial rapist, is a complex and sensitive, and it is reasonable to expect that not all victims who wish to participate in the suit will come forward at an early stage in the litigation, end quote, which is what McDonough's decision said. The class action claims to also provide a built-in shield for victims who will not have to step forward or identify themselves as the case winds through the court system. That protection could prove especially important to sexual assault victims in Johnson City. Among the numerous misconduct allegations against Johnson City police is that they arrested, physically assaulted, and then conspired to evict a victim of sexual assault from public housing after she cooperated with a federal prosecutor investigating multiple sexual assault allegations against Johnson City businessman Sean Williams that had gone long ignored by local police. Kateri Dahl, the federal prosecutor who was working as a liaison with Johnson City Police, has since filed a whistleblower suit making many of the same allegations as the victim's lawsuit. Johnson City Police never arrested Williams for sexual assault, despite efforts by multiple women to report their assaults to police. At one point, during a search of Williams's downtown condo on an unrelated illegal ammunition charge, police discovered a handwritten note on his nightstand scrawled with the first names of 23 women under the word raped. Then police chief Carl Turner 
dismissed the list saying, I don't know if that's girls he's raped or girls he's had consensual sex with and calls it whatever he calls it. All I know is there's a piece of paper with some first names on it. And this is according to legal filings. Williams was arrested in North Carolina last April after local officers on a routine patrol at a local university found him sleeping in his car. The campus officers found three-fourths of a pound of cocaine and nearly a pound of meth in the car. A search of his electronic equipment yielded 52 images of women who appeared to be drugged as Williams sexually assaulted them in his Johnson City apartment. Women who previously reported their assaults to Johnson City police were among the recovered images. Williams' electronic devices also contained images of two children being sexually assaulted, including a child under two years old, court records said. Williams is now in jail, facing charges of child rape and child pornography. Quote, we respect the decision of the court and are prepared to move forward with the case, end quote, read a statement released Saturday by the office of Johnson City Manager Kathy Ball. Victims' attorneys declined to comment late Friday. These women are represented by California-based attorneys Vanessa Bear-Jones of Advocates for Survivors of Abuse and Elizabeth Kramer of Erickson, Kramer, and Osborne and Brentwood-based attorney Heather Moore Collins with HMC Civil Rights Law. Court rules bar attorneys from making public comments during active litigation, but the federal judge late last year granted a one-time exemption for the plaintiffs in the case after Ball held a press conference suggesting Williams's victims bore some fault for their assaults because they consumed and partook illegal drugs. I can't. Quote, I am one of the 52 women whom Sean Williams sexually assaulted while taking sexually explicit photos of me, one woman said during the victim's press conference held in Knoxville earlier this month to respond to Ball's comments. Quote, my name also appears on the raped list, which the Johnson City Police Department recovered from Sean Williams' apartment. The people in my community who were supposed to protect me and the other women you see here failed us. End quote. Wow. This is absolutely disgusting. And this article is from the Tennessee Lookout. I will add it to the episode notes, of course. But can you imagine? I cannot even imagine. So guys, corruption exists. Of course, not just in Tennessee, but this podcast is called Corruption in Tennessee, and I am floored. I am floored. This has not made the national news yet as well. Okay, thanks for listening. I know that this episode was a total doozy, full of random information, but next week we will be back on track, back in the parking lot at WPI with a very special guest. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Until next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.